There's a curious line in the creeds, the creeds that we confess week in, week out here at Sanctuary. If you join us for daily prayer, or if you're somebody who prays the office, uh, you say the creeds much more often than that. Um, daily, you are confessing the creeds. And the creed is a kind of confession in that it's not just a proclamation, but it's a kind of prayer that we're hoping is worked into us. There are times when we make that confession, not fully convinced of the confession that we're making, but we're trusting in what the claims of the creed are. But there's a curious line in the creed that says, I believe in the holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now, if you've been at sanctuary very long, um, you'll know that there was a lot of time and a lot of energy put into just getting us comfortable as a community, as Protestants, saying the word Catholic. And so there was a lot of time there where we gave a lot of disclaimers about what we mean when we say Catholic. And this isn't capital C Catholic, like the Latin Catholics, Roman Catholics. This is lower C Catholic. It means something else entirely. So we gave a lot of disclaimers because that word could just make us feel a kind of way. But I think in doing that work, and it was necessary work, it, it kind of eased us into being able to confess the creed together with the church Catholic. But I think in doing that, we actually lost a little bit of what that phrase means. We focus so much on settling ourselves with saying Catholic and understanding that that includes us, that in some ways we missed the point of that line as a whole. In the creeds, we don't confess that we believe the holy Catholic and apostolic church. We confess that we believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. You hear the difference. Not that just that we believe it exists or trust in what it says, but that in some way our hope, <laughs> our faith, is in the church. One of the things that we've often said around sanctuary, this is a, a Bishop Ed-ism, is that faith is as corporate as it is private. Or if you prefer the word personal, that faith is as corporate as it is personal, which is to say that faith is as much about us as it is about me. This means in order to be Christian, I have to be around other Christians. <laughs> the early church had this phrase, and it doesn't mean anything to us in Latin, but it basically translates, where there's one Christian, there are no Christians. That to be Christian is to be with other Christians. That doesn't mean that we don't have, an, have personal encounters with Jesus, we absolutely do. But that the most important parts of your faith are not just what's happening to you personally. We affirm that Jesus is personally the second person in the Trinity, in the triune God. And we affirm that you can know Jesus personally. But it was Augustine that argued for what he called totus Christus, what he calls the whole Christ. And he says, yes, you can know Jesus personally, but the whole Christ, the totus Christus 
Augustine says, is Jesus with the church. The church then is not just a good idea. The church then is not just part of God's creation, part of the way that God has organized things. The church is a work of God's salvation. She's not simply the fruit of God's work of salvation. She is its instrument. As we've heard repeatedly throughout this Easter season, the risen Christ makes himself known and he makes himself available. We heard it last week in Father Brent and Reverend Janice's wonderful message about the Emmaus Road story where Christ and his risen body journeys along the Emmaus Road with these disciples hiding himself. They don't recognize him until he breaks the bread. And it says their eyes are opened and he disappears. <laughs> what is that? I don't know, but it's really wonderful that Christ makes himself known in his resurrected body. And now, today, Christ makes his body available to believers as loaf and as cup. And he makes his body available to the world as the church. We are, as the church, as Christians, as a community of believers, we are the body of Christ. One of our texts for today comes to us from Acts chapter two, and you'll know this text. It says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. We know this text. We love this text. We find all kinds of creative ways to dance around this text <laughs> politically. <laughs> but notice when the events of Acts 2 take place. This is post-resurrection world. And what we're meant to see by the placement of this text after Easter is that God institutes the church by not letting Jesus' resurrection be itself the end. God raised the crucified Christ from the dead, but that's just the beginning. The resurrection is not the end. Christ ascends and gives the world his body as the church. Alfred Loisy, he was a Catholic modernist and critic of the church. He famously said, Jesus announced the kingdom, but it was the church that came. He means it as a criticism, but it's the truth. And it's the truth because God willed it so. That what is left on earth as the body of Christ is the church. And why is that? Should be the next question we ask ourselves. Why? Why wasn't the resurrection the end? Why are we in this 
perpetually liminal space, this in-between space, this already not yet space. God's kingdom has arrived, but it's not arrived in its fullness. Why? Part of the reason why is because God has made a promise. Remember, in the Old Testament, God makes a promise, a covenant with Israel. He called Israel to be a kind of people, and the kind of people that God calls them to do, God calls them to be, is to be people who bless the nations, to be a blessing for the rest of the world. This is who God calls his people to be. And that that blessing will culminate in something. It actually has a telos, it has a direction that they will bless other nations so that the nations can be brought in to worship God together. And to shortcut that promise, to shortcut that blessing would mean that God is not true to his word. Robert Jensen says, had Jesus' resurrection been immediately the end, as it was supposed to be, according to the scriptures, Israel's mission would have been aborted. God institutes the church, brings us together as the body of Christ so that God can remain faithful to his promise to bless the nations. We are here as the body of Christ to be a blessing and not a curse to the world. Why isn't the resurrection the end? Because the world has not yet been blessed. There is more time now on this side of Christ's resurrection so that we as God's people, as Christ's body, as the church, we have time to realize God's promise and God's calling to bless the world and to gather people together in worship of him. The creeds call us to confess our belief in the church because until the eschaton, until the end of all things, this is what God is doing in the meantime. This is what God is doing, gathering us together, bringing us to a table, being present to us in bread and in the cup, and then sending us back out into the world to be a blessing. Here's the bad news. So long as we exist as the church, we are going to wound one another. It's just inevitable. Another one of our texts for today comes to us from 1 Peter chapter 2. And it says this. This is a hard text to sit with. It says, for it is a credit to you if being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. It just assumes that we're going to suffer. It doesn't say if you suffer. It says you're going to suffer. And apparently there are just ways to suffer and unjust ways to suffer. But the point being made is that suffering is going to happen. If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, what credit is that? But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For this you have been called because Christ also suffered, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 
When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. I want us to hear that today. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So a quick disclaimer. This text ends, it says, you were going astray like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd, the guardian of your souls. What we're about to talk about certainly doesn't apply to situations of abuse, to situations of manipulation, situations that are dangerous. That's not what we're talking about in terms of suffering and bearing that kind of suffering. We're also not suggesting that suffering in and of itself is a good or that suffering is what God intends for us or that suffering is something that God forces us to endure. Suffering is just part of being human. So long as you live in authentic community, you will wound one another. We will wound one another. It's just part of the human experience. And one of the ways that you know that you're in a church and not in a club is that you find yourself with a whole bunch of people that you would have nothing to do with if not for Jesus. I mean, just think about the disciples. Most of these guys, if given the chance, yeah, don't go like pointing around at people in this moment like, yeah, that's you. (laughs) Most of the disciples, if given the chance, would have killed each other if not for Jesus. You've got zealots and you've got tax collectors in the same group around the same table. It's by coming here that we learn to be human in the way that God calls us to be human, how we learn how to bless the world. We don't come into the church in order to escape the world. We don't come here to learn how to get away from those difficult people. We come and we learn how to be faithful in those relationships with those difficult people. And some of those difficult people are in the room with you today. We're not escaping from the world here. We're learning how to live in the world faithfully. We come here to heal And we come here to heal so that we can be healers. I don't have time for this, and it's a gross story, but I'm going to tell it to you. Five weeks ago yesterday, our dog, uh, his name's Grover, and I constantly say that he's my biggest hurdle to sanctification. Five weeks ago yesterday, he got attacked by a couple of other dogs, and it was really, really awful. Um, we didn't really know the extent of, of how badly he was wounded until like a day or so later after we'd taken him in. And the vet called us and they were like, you know, if we would have known ahead of time, like we would have said he's got like a 1% chance of living, but he's like miracle dog somehow. He's doing great. But one of the things that happened a couple weeks ago, I mean, he's got like, if you've never seen like a dog bite, I hope you never do. Um, they're just holes, like punctures that get put into these animals that are horrific. And they take a long time to heal. And the vet told us, <laughs> he said, so you might hear his wounds healing. And I said, what? I didn't, I didn't, I 
didn't understand you. What did you say? He goes, you're going to hear his wounds healing. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, well, listen. And he kind of like squeezed our dog a little bit. Brothers and sisters in Christ. (laughs) Those wounds started making these like little like sucking sounds. We thought Grover had been like passing gas a lot the last few weeks. It was his holes making noises. Healing is gross. Healing is hard work. Healing takes time. We love talking about being people who, oh, we are here to heal one another and to be healed people and go and heal the world. We like the idea of health. We don't like the idea of healing. Healing is messy and it oozes and it requires attention and care. Healing is hard, hard work. We shouldn't have any romantic ideas about what it is to heal. Sometimes it means opening up old wounds so that they can heal appropriately, and that's painful and uncomfortable. We don't want to do that. Healing is gross, messy business. And what ought to be true about us, sanctuary, is not that we avoid those difficult processes and those difficult issues and those difficult people, but that we choose not to divide over difficult issues and difficult people. Because we're never going to find the face of Jesus in a bunch of people that look just like us or who think just like us, or who believe just like us, or who vote just like us, or who watch TV just like us. We keep looking for God, we keep knocking at the door, and who God sends to open it is our neighbor, is our enemy. We go searching for God and God leads us to a stranger Because that is where we learn to see God as he is and not God as we have imagined him to be. To become those people, we have to learn how to live with one another over the long haul and to do so without judgment. The scriptures tell us over and over and over again, do not judge, be slow to judge, don't judge one another. Jesus tells us, do not judge. Not just as a way of ignoring sin. Most of the time the folks who are are quoting do not judge just mean, don't judge me. (laughs) I'm trying to get away with something, right? We don't judge not to ignore what's going on but because how you judge others somehow determines how life is gonna happen to you. When you posture yourself against other people in judgment, you start to take that shape of judgment. Inevitably, if we're honest, it's the people that you judge the harshest that are the very people doing the very thing that reminds you about the very part of yourself that you like the least. Think about, for those of you who have kids, and you know this to be true, that those frustrating things your kids do, when we look at them and really see them, it's just parts of us. Those people in your life who frustrate you to no end, who just seem to cut across the grain 
of your soul, those people that just bother you to no end. If we're honest, the very thing that bothers us about them is the very thing that we're afraid of in our own hearts and in our own lives. What they call out of us makes us uncomfortable. So Jesus tells us, Jesus warns us, the way you think about other people, the way you judge them is only a reflection of yourself. Paul tells the Corinthians, I don't care if you judge me. (laughs) He says, I don't even judge myself because there is one who judges me and he hasn't said anything yet. He says, listen, you have your opinion of me, it doesn't matter that much. I have an opinion of myself, that matters even less. But there is one person who has an opinion of me and he hasn't shared it yet. So we wait, all of us, to hear the judgment of Christ. In another place, Paul tells the Romans not to judge anyone because in judging them, you condemn yourself. What he's saying is that the sins you judge in others are really just the sins that you care about. My grandfather, he, uh, he was a pastor till the last day that he was with us. He used to say that he would preach until he got hungry. And he was a big guy, so you knew you were like in for it. Like, you were gonna be there a while. And one of the things that he used to say to us, he'd listen to other, other preachers and then he'd f- watch them fall into some kind of scandal and he'd go, you know, it seems to be the people who are preaching against things the most that end up falling into that very same thing. We don't judge because it just talks about who we are. The things that you're judging and criticizing and rebuking in other people, those are the things that you care about because those are in some ways a problem for you. So Jesus tells us, don't judge. John Climacus, he is a seventh century monk, wrote this book called The Ladder of Divine Ascent. So he was known as John of the Ladder, not a great name. But in that book he wrote, Do not trust even one thought that would judge your neighbor. Do not trust even one thought that would judge your neighbor. Now that doesn't mean we turn a blind eye to injustice. We are called to see the wrong, but we see the wrong and we see the injustice in light of the resurrection. We see it in a way so that our response to that injustice can be one that brings life and not death one that brings unity instead of division. Because this is what our judgments do. Our judgments invite us to make sense of the world on our own terms. They invite us to divide the world based on the lines that seem to make sense to us. But remember, there is one who can judge justly, who can judge rightly, and he hasn't spoken yet. So we ought to hold our judgments until he does. Of course, judgment is going to well up in us. Judgments are going to come to us. Those thoughts of judgment are going to happen. But remember what John of the Ladder just said, don't trust it. It's going to come. 
That judgment of someone else is gonna well up inside of you, but don't trust it, he says. In fact, it's better to ask yourself, what is my judgment of that person saying about me? Because to accept that judgment and to consider it as true is to divide the world in ways that are acceptable to me, divide the world on my terms, divide the world in ways that make sense to me. But that voice of division, that voice of accusation, it is not the voice of God. It's the voice of the accuser, of the Satan. It's not to be trusted. Today is Good Shepherd Sunday. And part of what it is to trust Christ as our good shepherd is to know his voice. We're all being inundated with that voice of the accuser. Ready, quick to judge other people. But we have to hear a better voice. We have to hear a truer voice. The voice that we will hear when he rightly judges the world. That voice is the voice of the good shepherd. Remember our gospel reading for today. It says, the good shepherd calls his sheep by name. He leads them. He goes ahead of them. And they follow because they know his voice. They do not follow a stranger, it says, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. In her book, Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus, Anne Spengler tells this story of this woman, Judith Fain, who's a doctoral candidate at the time at the University of Durham. And as part of her studies, she was spending several months each year in Israel. And while she was walking on a road near Bethlehem, she watched as three shepherds converged with their separate flocks of sheep. And these three men, they all stop, they hail each other, and they decide they're gonna have a conversation. And while they're coming together, while they're coming together for their conversation, all of their sheep start intermingling, melting into one big flock. And in this story, she says that wondering how these three shepherds would ever be able to identify their own sheep, Judith sat down and she waited until the men were ready to say their goodbyes. She watched, fascinated, as each of the shepherds called out to his sheep at the sound of their shepherd's voice, like magic, the sheep separated again into three flocks. She says, apparently some things haven't changed in Israel for thousands of years. Today I want you to hear this, we are the church. We are not just a result of salvation. The church is the instrument of salvation. We need one another. We come here to worship so that we can go and bless the world. This is who we're called to be. But we can only be those people faithfully when we withhold our judgments, when we refuse our divisions, and we listen for the one who judges justly, the voice of the good shepherd.